All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 Alright everybody, welcome to Rants with Justin and Joe. Uh, today we will having our, is that our second episode of the third season, Joe? Second, but man, after that, that first one makes this one feel like the fourth or fifth one. Yeah, for those of you who missed it, the first one was a three hour long episode. Uh, Nick, I promise it will not be three hours today because we don't have the stamina for it anymore. Uh, <laughs> made us old. Um, so uh, Joe will go over uh, the logistics of all this, and then we will introduce our guest and have a great discussion. Yeah, so if you're catching this live and you wanna ask a question um, to uh, our, our lovely guest here, you can use the Q&A option. Um, that lets you ask questions anonymously. Uh, if you don't feel comfortable with people knowing who's asking that question, you can use that function. You can also use the chat. Uh, the chat sometimes we miss because uh, if, if that gets rolling, it's hard to see what questions come in. Uh, if you're not catching this live and you're listening to it on, on whatever you use to stream podcasts, well, sorry, you don't get to ask questions. You should have caught us live. Uh, try again next time. Uh, and if you want uh, CEUs for this, uh, you can purchase it and download your certificate at www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. Just make sure that you're keeping track of the keywords so you can get your CEU when you check out. Our opening word, our opening keyword for anybody who wants um, CEUs will be embracing. E-M-B-R-A-C-I-N-G, embracing. I think that's all the logistics. I always feel like I'm forgetting something. Uh, no, I think, I, think, I think you got it, man. I think that was pretty good. So uh, we are gonna have Nick, uh, glad to have Nick on today and I'll let him introduce himself in a minute, but we are gonna have Nick at our annual APF uh, conference last year in 2020, but of course COVID happened and that switched some things up for us. Uh, Nick was gracious enough to present at an international, uh, the APF international conference, the Hong Kong conference. I think that was in November or December or sometime around there. Um, and unfortunately, we didn't get to see Nick live in Hong Kong. I think that would have been a much more fun experience as both Joe and I are uh, love going to Hong Kong whenever we can. But we were like, we need to get Nick into this podcast. So Nick, thank you for joining us uh, today. Uh, one thing we liked is just uh, for you to introduce yourself briefly before we get to questions. Um, and then I just also want to remind the, uh, the live audience, you know, this is your turn to ask Nick uh, the questions. Uh, Please do it in the Q&A section, but yeah, just ask away because Nick's uh, experience, we want to all uh, learn from it. So Nick, do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, I mean, no, I, do, I don't mind. I don't mind. Um, yeah, I've, so I was born in Hong Kong uh, 24 years ago. I sometimes lose track of my own age. Um, and I attended Hong Kong International School for, from kindergarten or pre-kindergarten. We call that Hong Kong Reception One. All the, way to, all the way to grade 12. And then from there, I went to the U.S. for college. And then I'm, after I got my BA, I got my MA. And now I'm going to hopefully going to get my PhD and stay in school for the rest of my life. Um, and I was diagnosed with high-functioning autism at the age of three. Um, and just to confirm that the diagnosis was correct, we did it again when I was five, then when I was eight years old. And I believe that for the first two times I was diagnosed with high-functioning autism. And then for the last time I was diagnosed, uh, the one when I was eight years old, I was diagnosed with PDD-NOS, which stands for uh, Pervasive Developmental Disorder, not otherwise defined. Um, of course, like it, the, the autism spectrum is more complicated than just saying like, you know, it's a scale from more severe to less severe. There are all sorts of different factors involved. But generally speaking, um, we believe that the issue is not that any of the diagnoses were wrong or contradict each other, but rather that um, successful um, application of applied behavioral analysis 
uh, based intervention contributed to me being able to overcome many symptoms typically associated with people on the autism spectrum and help me live a normal life in which I in which I in which I have the power of choice um, cho choosing you know uh, what what to do in my own life uh, living independently um, um, make, making my own decisions about like social or academic or work life or whatever. Some uh, privilege that's not necessarily accorded to uh, many people on the autumn spectrum who have not um, um, had the support that they needed um, during, during that vital time when they're like three to three to 10 years old, um, when people, when, when it's most important that they receive that kind of support and in particular applied behavioral analysis based intervention. So I was very lucky in that regard. Well, thank you for introducing yourself. And, and I feel you on the full-time student thing. I think I would be a full-time student if my wife would allow it, but I think she might get irritated if I'm in school and rack up more and more student debt as time goes on. But I would love to just get PhD after PhD after PhD. So I can relate with you there. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. I just, yeah, I'm at school for, I, I will be in school forever, but I, I, after my PhD, I plan to um, plan to keep it at one and then hopefully go to academia after that, just to clarify. Great. And what's your, what are you pursuing your, or one, what do you want to pursue your PhD in? In history. In history. Nice. Particular Middle Eastern history. Um, though, like, I guess thematically, I'm also interested in just like social political history and history of, you know, different uh uh, economic classes and demographic groups and how how their interests were represented in political institutions um, um, thing and such as like through the curtailing of like aristocratic privileges and things like that fascinating fascinating um, so I, I guess I've, I'll start off with some of the questions as the questions start to roll in um, but thank you for, for telling us about um, your diagnosis and, and how things uh, have transpired across your age uh, or across your life. I guess I'm just curious, uh, in addition to getting diagnosed, when did you find out about your diagnosis or was it, did it happen simultaneously or was, um, were they two different events? Um, I, I had no idea I had autism. I was on the autism spectrum until I was around 15 or 16 years old. Um, I thought that uh, people coming over to like, you know, say what well, was cool or uncool and help me like pronounce words correctly and everything was perfectly normal. Um, for some reason, it just never, for some reason, I never really shared that with people. Uh, maybe I did share it with people just absentmindedly and then they just kind of shrugged. I, I don't know, but um, no one really, no one really broke it to me that, um, other, that other people don't have that kind of thing going on in their lives. Um, and I did not really have an inkling of suspicion until I was around 15 years old. Uh, when my parents thought I was ready to like know that I had that was on the autism spectrum and and told told me that fact, um, but there's a little complication in that they in that they planned on telling me like at this point they planned on telling me like in like a month or two, but then like a month or two ahead of time, um, one of the employees at my school um, actually broke the news when they weren't supposed to. Um, they and they got they actually got the diagnosis wrong. They told me I had Asperger's, even though I don't think I was ever diagnosed with Asperger's. And me not really knowing anything about um, the autism spectrum at the time, thought they were like calling me, um, you know, backside and then like a, a and then like the food that you would eat. I was like, I was like, I, I, is this like supposed to be some some attempt at being funny, like a joke? And then like I clarified my parents, and they're like, oh, oh, that that's this is what she means, and this is what we were planning on telling you. Thank you. Uh, that's the, uh, I always feel like it's interesting hearing stories about when people find out about themselves, essentially. So, and I know everyone's story is just a little bit differently. So thanks for sharing that. Uh, and based on your introduction, it sounded like you had a, a pretty good experience with applied behavior analysis. Uh, do you mind sharing um, maybe a little bit more details, like what, what that consisted of for you? Because ABA can look different for different people. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your, more about your experience with that? Yeah, I mean, um, they, I think a lot of the time, um, it's hard for me to, it was hard for me to, to, uh, to consider my, consider what my behavior looked like to others. And so it was very helpful for, um, for ABA therapists to act out different scenarios in front of me. 
it then asks me for to pronounce judgment on whether it was cool or uncool. Um, and then later they would try to put me into the motions of, you know, the, the behavior that I considered cool in, in a way that's almost tactile. And then depending on, you know, how well I exhibited that behavior, they would, they would either like say, you know, oh, just like, I, you can't play with this toy truck for five seconds. For, not five seconds is too small a time frame. Maybe you can't play with this toy truck for 30 seconds. And then, but if I did something right, or it's, you know, something that's generally socially acceptable, um, then they would let me play with the toy truck for 30 seconds. Um, um, and I, I know like people associate um, negative reinforcement with uh, something that's like sometimes malicious or too aggressive. But in my case, it was literally just like the denial of being able to play with the toy truck for 30 seconds and that worked anyway. So I think it was very helpful and um, taught me all the, taught me all the, what, what I how I should generally be conducting myself in public and in private. <laughs> And you said that started at age three? Uh, yes. So, you know, a lot of our listeners and people that we work with, um, work with families and work with adolescents and adults, is there any advice you would give them from your perspective in terms of intervention or goals or just anything in general? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, th there are a lot of things I'd say, um, but the first thing that come to mind right now is firstly that it was very important that uh, beyond the therapy sessions, it's important to stay vigilant and make sure that um, that the person with uh, on the autism spectrum continues to try to think about their behavior. Um, it's like just because therapy is over doesn't mean that you can you know revert. You should revert back to old habits that could be self defeating. Um, so that's very important for us. So I think second of all. It's important not just to think of this as like, uh, think of yourself, like the person on the autism spectrum in a vacuum, right? Like this is solely uh, a, a, a single-minded struggle of overcoming symptoms, right? Like the experience of overcoming symptoms and the experience that someone um, has by having autism, not, which is I think different from the symptoms you get directly from having autism, is something that could develop over time as well in, in good and bad ways. So for example, I think that it could be easy for some people on the autism spectrum to, uh, because of their negative experience of being bullied or ostracized and generally think, feeling powerless, to try to, to expel that feeling by themselves turning to bullying. And even if they don't turn to bullying, being a bit being judgmental towards others because it makes them feel like they're in the position of judging others rather than being in the position of them being judged all the time. Right, so I think it's important to monitor that kind of thing as well. It's not just about overcoming symptoms; it's also about making sure you're in the direction of like letting your experience make you a better person as opposed to a worse person. Well, and, and related to that, we have our, our first question that are now the questions are starting to roll in. Um, so I think I'll, I'll bring this one up because I think it it goes with along with what you were saying. Uh, are there any skills that you were taught while in ABA therapy that you still use today? Like. Um, like skills in terms of like, I, I guess like they, can they ask follow-ups if I ask for clarification? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you could all always answer it however you, you see fit. And if, if they want more clarification, they can throw it in there as well. So however you want to take it. Well, if they, if they mean like, um, like ways in which I remind myself not to like, you know, to be more, I guess, more self-conscious and not do inappropriate things. Um, yeah, at first, like I there, I would try to like you know picture myself almost from a third person, like I'm playing a video game, um, and you know just like and and make sure that I it's a hard balance to strike because on one hand you want to be self conscious and make sure you're not doing anything that will be self defeating or will like hurt other people, but at the same time if you overthink it, I mean you don't have in a fast moving conversation you don't have ten seconds to think everything through, so it really is something that you have to think about like maybe in your own time, but also like, you know, practice speaking to other people. And even if you fail at first, like uh, at the end of the day, just more experience helps. Um, and in terms of like, I guess, general skills that like the type of skills you put on a resume, I guess. Um, I think that there are a lot of aspects that come with autism that, that I was encouraged to actually keep and perhaps like modify to like get rid of, I guess, like bad side effects, like, I'll become very um, obsessive about like very minute details. 
and of course, like those things can be pretty self-defeating if it's going to, if you're just going to be focusing on like the threads on your pants or whatever, but if you could redirect that energy towards something academic or just anything that could, that could make, that could, that could like expand your horizons, then it's a good thing to have. I think that's a wonderful point. Something that might be a weakness in one area or one context might be a, a strength in another. Uh, I remember reading, uh, I think it's called Blink. Uh, uh, and in that book, they talk about uh, these people that have these skills watching or looking at paintings and being able to tell if the painting is uh, fake or not. And they do it in like almost a split instant. And they have to really pay attention to the details that even in those situations, they might not be able to tell you why they think it's fake, um, but it's definitely a fake. Um, so it makes me think being able to pay attention to details like that in that context uh, is, a, is a huge strength, but like in other contexts, it might be um, a weakness or it might be limiting. Yeah, right now, actually, I, I just came out of a Zoom class and we were talking about um, uh, different charters that came from the medieval kingdom of Sicily and how a lot of them are actually forgeries um, by aristocratic families trying to like stake a claim on land. Um, and, and like, I thought it'd be a pretty fun game to put, uh, put a real, a genuine document and a forged document and to see if people can figure out which one's forged and which one is genuine. I'd probably not do very well. I'd like you, you have to be a very practiced notary in order to actually be successful in that kind of exercise. Yeah, I wouldn't be any good there either. I'd be, I'd be horrible. Uh, so another question came in, and I love seeing the questions uh, rolling in because this is your time with Nick, so we can all uh, learn from him. Um, the question is, do you remember noticing changes in friendships or other relationships as you learned some of the skills that you've talked about learning like self-awareness? Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the nature of the friendships that I had, because I think, well, I think, first of all, it's very common, I think, at least for my, I think my experience at least attests to it, that it's very common for people who don't have a very satisfying social life to tend to be escapist and misrepresent the facts to themselves. So in, in elementary school and in middle school and like maybe the very early part of high school, uh, when my when uh, the symptoms related to autism like were still kind of very obviously displayed, um, I tended I tended to make friends in the sense that yeah I'd talk to people and like I sometimes crack jokes and they'd laugh and I or I'd sit with them at the cafeteria table, and some of them might be like people that are family friends rather than people that I chose to be friends with in school, um, and even if they they were laughing at me rather than laughing with me. Um, or, or just kind of like seeing me as someone who might, who might help them in homework or something. Um, I would, I would misrepresent these facts to myself and convince myself that they were true friends, um, even if they were really conditional friends in that sense. And I think like later on, um, through high school and especially in college, uh, I, I, I tend to, I, I had, um, th these friendships like increased in quality, if you could put it in those terms. But even, even in these years and even in college, um, there are lots of times where even if I wasn't um, displaying symptoms obviously associated with autism, again, here's where this is where the experience of having autism comes in, right? Like you become very, you, you become very uh, socially anxious. You are worried of recreating the experience of yourself from the past of being ostracized or bullied or rejected. And so you might not, and so it hinders your um, efforts to actually try to make true, make true friendships. Having said that, I think that I have a lot of very close friends I still keep in touch with. In particular, there's a there's a group of college friends I have who lived in the same dormitory building with me that um, that, that I talk to pretty much every day, um, even though we've all went our separate ways. And I'm very, and I'm very grateful for them. And other people that I've made as friends I made as well in high school and uh, graduate school. I feel like the the majority of friends that I made were in grad school. I, I don't remember any friends from high school that I really I, I keep in touch with like I do the ones that I met in grad school. I wonder if it has anything to do with like you're there for a shared interest. Like if you're getting your PhD in history, you're with a bunch of people that have the same interests as you. Um, just like when we're in grad school, you know, uh, I was around a bunch of people that had the same similar interests. So I wonder if there's something to that. 
I mean, we, we, we have a lot of interesting um, conversations about a variety of things from like the stupid to the academic. Um, but actually now that I go through the roster of, of say like the, the cult, the calls friend group that I have, I'm only one of them is history and the rest are, you know, they're STEM, they're, they're computer science, they're econ, they're math. Um, I think what, what, well, if I had to, do an analysis and like make, I, th I guess, a generalization of why we ended up becoming friends. I think a lot of it is that we share, I guess, the same sense of humor and the same kind of behavior. Um, we t we're, 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 I think all of us are kind of opinionated, uncouth, loudmouths. So. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, oh, go ahead, Justin. Not all of them, but like in general, we t at least a part of each one of us has that tendency, even if some of us are better concealing it than others. That's great. Uh, we have some more some more questions, if you don't mind. This this one takes a little bit of a of a turn. Um, what would you say to anyone who says you were misdiagnosed and never really on the spectrum? And yeah. again, if, if you don't feel comfortable answering any of these questions, please let us know. Yeah, I think that, uh, that, that that's actually happened to me fairly recently. I won't go into the details, but, um, and I wasn't expecting it coming. And this was the first experience I had where someone directly called that into question. And so, um, well, my first instinct was that, the, I mean, the facts are, are laid out there, right? That, and these are facts that I have full access to and that, that, the, uh, the key, and that that person does not. So I think it's, so I think the first thing that one needs to do is simply say, like, I know my life better than you know my life. Um, I have all the documents. I know, um, I've been reflecting on myself for like the past 18, 20, 24 years about this. And, and um, I think it's frankly unfair and rude for anyone to call, to call, to call my diagnosis into question. Um, I think secondly, it's a, Maybe it's, maybe it's not that important at the moment, but I think it, we, we should also consider that like there are reasons why people might call someone out for what might try to like uh, claim someone else's misdiagnosed for like a variety of reasons. Um, and I think that the first step to convincing to like um, getting rid of that kind of behavior is to is is to is to is to talk to them in a way within the framework of like addressing like why they tried to do this in the first place. Like maybe they're just not very well informed about autism or maybe uh, they had a different experience of ABA based intervention that causes them to have a different view of autism or it, it's, it's hard to say. It depends per, from person to person. Yeah, I guess I, I want to say I'm so sorry you've had those experiences that people call into question with you directly. And yet I'm so impressed of how uh, like reflective you are of thinking from their perspective of of why they might be doing it. I know, you know, I'm mm -hmm. I wouldn't be as reflective as, as that. I would probably just go to being annoyed that they would even do it. So it's so impressive to see anyone, um, anyone do that. It's just there's, I assume there's different reasons, as you said, and it's good for us all to look at the reasons why that might occur. But I am sorry you had to do that, uh, experience that. Yeah. I don't want to sound self-aggrandizing or give everyone rose-colored glasses here. I, I myself was also very annoyed. And, and I, don't, I, I don't think that um, look, um, trying to understand their perspective and having negative feelings towards them and that accusation um, are mutually exclusive. Fair enough. Um, you know, another thing that uh, an audience member said and is, um, where are we? Was there anything that you remember disliking about your experience with ABA? Is there anything as you reflect on your past that you wish didn't happen or you didn't like even in the, in the moment? I uh, just like not being able to play with the toy truck for 30 second intervals. Um, but I think the I think the main problem I had like appeared I guess later on once I once the therapy was doing its work and I became more self conscious and like I guess worried about how other people would think of me, um, in the sense that it's it's difficult to give someone special treatment but keep that completely under wraps right, and I think especially towards the end of middle school. Uh, right around when I think I think uh, the ABA based intervention in like rap 
like wrapped up around when I was 10, 11 years old, but I continued to receive like special assistance from my school until middle school, um, until about eighth grade. I think they want me to continue on after eighth grade as well. Um, and I'll get more to that later actually, because I have some views on that. Um, but one of the main reasons why I did not want that to continue was because I was afraid people would be judgmental of me. And I think that they generally did a pretty good job of like get, providing me the assistance I needed. But I think there are times where where people should be more, perhaps more conscious of like, of how the recipient of the special assistance, um, like the conscious of how the recipient of that assistance might be worried about like, the special assistance causing people to think, oh, is that person getting special treatment because he's like a teacher's pet or like a favorite or because he's like stupid or needs help? Like putting it in their words, not necessarily what's the right thing to say. I think that's a, uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, that, I mean, that's, unless you want me to also get into why the whole issue not continuing yet until high school. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. that'd be fascinating for us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so like my view at the time was like, at, at that point, I think I was still very much in, and, and again, I don't want to like sound self-aggrandizing and give everyone rose-colored glasses. These days, I still, I still can be judgmental, but like in eighth grade, I was super judgmental, like as, you know, projecting all my own insecurities and everything. And like, I would compare myself to other people who might have needed special help and people who didn't receive special help. And I was always, and I, I would look at my report card and I would say, oh, you know, I'm getting pretty good grades and everything. I'm getting like, you know, you know A's and B's for the most, um, eight, um, on, on, on all my classes. So why would I need any special assistance? Right. I'm like, a, I'm, I'm a fine student. Um, and, and, uh, I'm just as good as like any normal student. Um, and I think, I think I use that as a justification to, to end, to end a therapy when the real issue was real issue, of course, was first of all, like, um, the self-consciousness of people of how people would view me and secondly me trying to convince myself and internalize that I had grown out of autism completely and no longer needed any help because receiving help was a confirmation that I was not entirely successful in my point of view and while it is true on one hand that I was getting you know pretty good grades at that point and I was beginning to like uh, make some normal friendships that there are all all sorts of issues that are still a hindrance and that maybe were less obvious, but maybe with the extra help, I could have put that put those issues away by now, but didn't. And if you want me to name an issue or two, I could say that first. Uh, even if like I'm I'm good at like cramming things to the last minute, and um, and I guess like it, at least in subjects that I enjoy or I'm good at, um, I tend to procrastinate a lot and cause a lot of pain and stress for myself when it ends up being when the assignment ends up being like five hours to the due date and like, oh no, like what am I gonna do now? And I end up finishing it and getting an okay grade in it probably, but it's, it would always be better. It would have been better perhaps if I continued with it in high school and learned to like fully put those issues away. I, I think the procrastination thing is probably more common than you think. And, and I don't, I mean, it, it might be part of, part of the autism, but it, I think there's a lot of people that don't have autism that procrastinate um, in very similar ways. I guess I'm wondering, do you have any recommendations for us um, that are in the field that are providing ABA services um, to try to prevent um, the stigma that that you hinted at that was associated with uh, the care or the supports at, at in those later stages, those later grades. Like, is there a way that it could have been done that would have made you feel more comfortable, or is it a goal to just uh, be able to eliminate uh, support and services by that by that age? Um, well, I think there are two prongs to this. I think like, the first the first relates like the individual person receiving the special support. I think that's that it's important not to prematurely end a support if they really need it, um, and I and I I mean they're like I guess they're like different ways in which you could try to be more subtle about things, like uh, not have a special counselor come into the classroom when and like very obviously be only like maybe maybe do a bit of misdirection right like pretend you're like paying attention to a lot of different students as opposed to the one student that um, that might actually need the help. I think that's like an example of what you can do. But I think more importantly, from a kind of macro perspective of how we can change people's perception in general. I mean, the root of the problem, right, is that people are judgmental towards people who might need to receive special help. 
I think in terms of like other kinds of stigmas in terms of like, you know, or just like more, not just stigmas, but like also implicit discrimination when it comes to like race or like gender or sexuality or whatever. I think a lot of schools are being more conscious about these things. And I think the same could apply for uh, people who have certain, uh, who, who have certain disabilities. Um, and so the first, the first thing might not even be needed in some cases if people aren't judging the person with autism in the first place, right? Yeah, I think that's a that's a wonderful point, and I hope that we're all working towards a less judgmental world uh, and a, a much more accepting and compassionate and caring world. Um, so I, I appreciate that response, and I, I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, so to, to make sure we have time to get all these questions that are coming in, and thank you again for for being here and and taking these questions. Um, this one is: Are there any misconceptions about autism that you hear that you would like to correct? Uh, I, uh, okay. Um, I, I don't really, I, I haven't really thought about this very much actually. So I'm going to be like speaking on the fly here. Um, I think one, I think one thing I kind of alluded to earlier was the whole idea that uh, people with autism are necessarily um, kind of like on a one-way struggle just towards like overcoming symptoms. I think there are a lot of complicated issues that arise from the symptoms of self and also themselves and also from like the experience of having autism and that we have to keep that in mind. Um, I think also there's a misconception that all um, that all just that just people are like all very similar to each other like the stereotype that they're all we're all a bunch of geeks uh, who who know how to who can memorize like a thousand digits of pi um, and act and act, I guess, strangely in different circumstances. I think, like, I think that's very that's a very reductionist way of thinking about people with autism. I think each each person has their different needs, their different desires, and their different weak and their different insecurities. And I think it's important to keep that in mind, not just on like a medical, like therapeutic level, but also just in terms of the way you personally you personally interact with people with autism, and the way I think that people with influence, such as uh, movie producers uh, depict people with autism in popular culture. I think that was a very, very good answer on the fly of uh, especially the reductionistic point. And I think so often it's just portrayed as everyone being so similar. We know it's such a wide uh, spectrum and everyone comes in with different experiences and different histories. And, and we really need to account for that and really speak to that. Um, as a field and just as a society as a whole. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like feeding it. I, and this is, and this is like, there's one other thing I think. Um, I think like with this whole kind of pervasiveness of popularizing nerd culture, um, a lot of the issues related to like our perceptions of autism feed into that. And I think nerd culture itself and by extension, um, like uh, our perceptions of people with autism is part, I think a general problem um, in public discourse and popular culture where lip service is done, um, I, where either lip service is done towards, you know, um, underrepresented or un underrepresented minorities, um, or they try to depict them in a way that's actually quite problematic behind the surface, but then it's easy for some audiences to just completely buy into it without realizing how that could actually be a problem. So another question that came uh, Nick, and remember on all these questions, just so people in the podcast know, um, these are coming up from audience members. And so the audience is really um, bringing up their, their questions and what they want to hear. And uh, Nick has no knowledge, nor do we have knowledge of what's going to be asked ahead of time. And Nick, is, as Joe said, anything you don't want to answer, just say you're not comfortable answering it and we can move on uh, very easily. But the question came up, uh, do you consider autism to be part of your identity or a major part of your identity today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I think um, that first of all, even if I supposedly like overcame uh, most of the symptoms during the course of applied behavioral analysis, um, I'll, I'll just stick with saying ABA from now to keep it sure. I don't, I don't know why I keep switching between the two. Um, so even if over the course I overcame or like learned to kind of um, suppress some of the more self-defeating aspects of autism there's there's certainly um still um behaviors relate that are that are the result of autism that i that i continue to still possess like for example in a good way in many cases for example the the very intense uh 
attention to detail and obsessiveness with certain minute topics. And I think as well, there's the whole issue of the fact that I spent a lot of time um, self-reflecting about autism and sometimes expressing these views in forums such as this, as well as the fact that, um, then again, a lot, a lot, much of my worldview and the way I interact with people is based on the experiences I've had with autism, which is in many ways contradictory, right? Like on one hand, I know what it's like to be judged and ostracized. Um, and so, and so, and so there is part of me that is inclined to be more inclusive of other people. But on the other hand, there's the, I mean, there's the other, there's, there's the other force pulling in the other direction, which is that at, at the same time, I, it does feel in some ways cathartic to be judgmental uh, because it makes me no longer feel like I was powerless, like I was in fourth and third grade. And that's certainly something that I try not, that I make a conscious effort not to do, yet, some, yet sometimes it is a bit of an effort to try to, uh, to, try to put down. Uh, well, and so based on that, do you have a preference for like person first or identity first language? What, what do you mean by that? So uh, do you prefer like uh, individual diagnosed with autism or autistic individual? Because uh, uh, I, I don't know, actually understand, didn't have really thought about like the implications of the respective designations. So like if you could tell me more about that, maybe. Yeah. Sure. I, I mean, I, I think there's some people that prefer um, the person first and there's some people that prefer to have the identity first. Uh, and there isn't necessarily, a, a, I don't think there's agreement across everybody about that. So uh, I just like to ask, just in case you prefer one or the other, that we're respectful of, of whichever one you prefer. So uh, like, I don't think we, we need to dive too deep into it if you don't uh, have any, any views on it or any preferences one way or the other. Yeah, I, I'm. Sh yeah, I, I I could read more into that and like for and form a view, but right now I don't have any well informed view on it. And I, I think your point, Joe, is beautiful. That we really should be asking people and not making judgments either way. And people like Nick, it's like what he doesn't seem to care either way at this point because he doesn't know uh, know the debate that's going on with I guess within our field of it. And so I do like the point of that. You know. It's individualized, and I'm sure some people have uh, different opinions. Yeah. Uh, Nick, another question that came up um, was, are there any supports you have found helpful that you still use today? Support, um, uh, let, oh, I see, I see I can read the messages myself. Um, yeah, yeah, you, you, can, you can look ahead and uh, go in order. Well, oh. supports in this, I mean, I think, I think these days, like, there's a, there's, there's been a destigmatization of a lot of like pre previously there's autistic people or individuals with autism um, have been receiving, you know, I, I guess kinds of special support. Right. Um, but now I think a lot of these, these, um, these outside special support is becoming more common among people who don't necessarily have autism because of, I think the general destigmatization of like mental health issues and whatnot. So I think in a sense, yes, I might like seek, be more open about like my personal issues with my, with my closest friends and everything. Um, but again, but these days it seems like a lot of people are more open about it anyway. And some people like also seek, seek therapists and, um, and, and aren't necessarily like ashamed to do so, which is a good thing, of course. Yeah, I think it's a, a wonderful point that the, the stigma associated with mental health or needing supports to, to improve your mental health or to take care of your mental health are, are kind of going away, um, which is a great thing. I, a term that I, I think is that I just became familiar with in the past few years is a, a, taking a mental health day. Uh, and I think it, that's kind of a an example of the stigma going away um, with, you know, we need to take care of ourselves physically and mentally. Uh, and I, I think it's a wonderful point. Yeah, I think the denial is going away too. Like I think, um, pe pe I mean, a lot of times when people say, you know, oh, oh I'm like depressed or I have uh, mental health issues, they, they might just get dismissed as, you know, trying to get attention or whatever. Uh, but I think these days people are, pe people are willing to take their word for it. Um, because I think a lot of people realize that people, re people realize that like, first of all, some people just kind of keep, keep those mental health issues suppressed until they feel they're comfortable, comfortable enough to express it with 
um, certain people and they shouldn't necessarily be shamed or uh, denied because they finally chose that time to do so. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful point. Um, and that people who want to get positive attention would like say stuff like, oh, I, I'm so smart in this thing or like, look at this achievement I made. They won't say like, I, I have a mental health issue, right? I think that's just a, that was a kind of dumb misconception that thankfully has been done away with for the most part. Yeah. Um, so we have another question here. Um, let's see, some groups, are, and, and you can see them. Um, so you have, you have access there. Some groups are trying to spread the message that all ABA is abuse and that ABA-based intervention providers don't listen to autistic voices. Uh, how do you feel about that? Well, I, I can understand if like a few, like some, there are individual cases of like the misapplication of ABA-based misintervention, but I think it's a mistake to, to say that is generally true. Um, I think, well, in, in my personal experience, I find that's been very helpful. And of course, and there have been like a lot of other people as well who have testified to the effectiveness and the, uh, and the, uh, and, and, and I guess the unproblematicness of their, of the kind of treatment that they've received. And of course, there's also scientific uh, evidence and statistics to back up the fact that like, in most cases, in, mo in the vast majority of, um, of cases around the world, the ABA-based intervention does not actually, does not actually abuse, abuse the recipients. And that a lot of the criticisms of a ABA, uh, while some of them might be based on real experiences, a lot of it is based, I think, on a lot of misinformation that's spread around, uh, spread, spread around social circles or social media, like, and like with negative terms that are, that, that I think negative terms that have like negative associations, like negative reinforcement, for example. Um, people think that means like hitting a kid or like um, abusing them in some awful way, but really that just for the most part involved, if applied correctly, involves the kid just not being able to play with a toy truck for 30 seconds. I first, uh, uh, I think it was such a lovely, elegant answer, Nick. And I first want to once again remind uh, listeners of this that we didn't coach you, Nick, on what to say, and uh, you weren't aware of the question, and we weren't aware of the question ahead of time just because that has come up on uh, previous rants. Um, and I think your the misapplication of the science is is so correct. You know, I, I'm sure there are individuals with autism or autistic adults or autistic children who have had bad experiences with ABA and who have been abused. And we should absolutely take all those accusations of abuse seriously. And um, we're sorry that those people went through it, and we're sorry that that's been their experience, but. That to me, that is, we need to listen to their voices and we love to listen to their voices and they're more than welcome to come talk to us about it. And, you know, we do want to listen to what they're saying. But as you said, you know, it's the misapplication of the science. And for me, you know, although it could and has occurred, I don't think it represents the word all. And so it's not everyone's experience and we just have to be really mindful of that, that it's not everyone has been, who's received behavioral intervention, that they've all been abused or all received a yeah. bad I Yeah. Like if a quack doctor puts detergent in a vaccine, it doesn't mean that all vaccinations are bad. Right. <laughs> I think that's a great analogy. I think Joe could uh, learn from, from the, uh, your analogies really quickly. Um, yeah. Well, and I, I, my analogies aren't, aren't great. I get criticized for that very frequently. Uh, but I think it's also a wonderful point about the terminology. Um, the terminology in our field doesn't, doesn't do us any favors in some situations with things like, you know, negative reinforcement or, you know, how we look at punishment and, and those types of things. So we're not doing ourselves any favors in those instances either. Yeah. And if people want like a real time... Um... Um, example of like the, the experience of autism still kind of like having its presence now in terms of like being self-conscious. I'm a little bit self-conscious of the fact that I use the word negative three times in the same sentence. That's, that's something they tell you not to do when you're, when you're writing uh, college essays or, or like speak talking to people in general. Well, I'm just impressed that you can self-edit like that as you're talking and, and, and be aware of that. I, I'm pretty sure I don't remember what I said two seconds ago. Uh, so uh, that's very impressive that you're able to do that. I, I never actually revisit, uh, well, mentally I might revisit, but 
Um, I never revisit recordings of myself or very rarely revisit recordings of myself. But in, in uh, and, it, and ten, it used to be never, but then in high school when, when I did some theater um, and like I was in plays and stuff, uh, my drama teacher said, Nick, you, you have to revisit recordings yourself in order to improve it, in, in order to like improve or correct yourself. Like this is not something you can avoid. And so thankfully, um, I, I, it is somewhat, it is, is, it is swallowable for me now to sometimes look at recordings of myself from the past. Well, and what's the saying? You, we are our own worst enemies, our own worst critics. Uh, like I hate listening to, I, I haven't listened to any of these podcasts after we've recorded them. Cause I just, I hate listening to my voice, um, whether it's in presentation form or not. So yeah, it's a hard pill for me to swallow. Mm-hmm. Guess I do things differently. Um, so another question that came up, as you can see, but for the audience is, what's your opinion of BCBAs? And I'm going to expand this to BCBAs or behavior analysts, because not all behavior analysts necessarily are BCBAs. But what is your opinion about BCBAs or behavior analysts who do not tar- who do not target stereotypic behavior, stereotypy in the autism population? So there's some, Nick, I don't know if you know, but there's some BCBAs who refuse or won't target stereotypy for individuals with autism. What, what do they mean by that though? I, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I think they won't uh, put in plans in place to try to reduce um, stereotypic behavior, hand flapping or gazing or uh, repetitive motions or lining things up. They won't, they won't take away the toy truck or they won't reinforce not doing it or something like that. Yeah, I mean, like my, my, I mean, my first instinct is to, is to think that it's probably not a good idea. Um, I, I think a lot of the times, even if there is growing acceptance of people with autism or uh, people who might display um, abnormal behavior, that at the end of the day, we live in a world where we have to, where we, where we have to conform to certain expectations um, where we have to try our best to make everyone around us as well as ourselves as comfortable as possible. And so I guess like flapping your arms might, might, might be more self-defeating than making other people uncomfortable, but saying being like overly blunt about certain things might, should, is a stereotype that should not necessarily be encouraged all the time, right? You don't want to, you know, tell people what the, you really think of them a lot of the time. Otherwise, it's just going to make everyone go home be feeling really bad about themselves. That's a, a, a great point. Um, yeah, sorry. Oh, no, you're fine. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, at, the end, at the end of the day, right, like it's, you, there has to be, we, we have to like make sure that, that autistic people end up having like being able to make their own individual choice, right? Um, in terms of like what they want to do with their social and academic and work life. And if they fail to, um, to, to um, control like these kind, some of these behaviors, it ends up denying them that choice because people aren't going to think that they are independently functioning enough to be able to do so. I think it's a wonderful point. I think to, to me, good quality ABA expands the number of choices that you have available and expands the number of opportunities that you have rather than restrict them um, or limit the number of choices and number of opportunities. And unfortunately, I think maybe there's a lot of people that haven't experienced ABA uh, or applied behavior analysis that has done that because um, it might be, you know, abuse in, for the name of ABA or something under the guise of ABA that isn't necessarily um, ABA like what you might have experienced. Mm-hmm. Well, it looks like we've flown through all of the questions. Normally, it's a challenge to get through these um, so I appreciate you being here to, to answer all of these. And I, last call for questions, everybody. So if you have any for Nick right now, get them in um, before we need to wrap up. That's dangerous, Joe. Last time that results in like 60 more questions. It is, it is. I know what you're gonna get. It's, it's a risk. Well, Nick, I think it was just wonderful hearing your perspective and, and your history with it and, you know, I know myself and Joe always love learning from individuals with autism as well as Autism Partnership Foundation. And so just hearing your unique perspective is 
amazing and, and how you're able to articulate it. And I do want to remind everybody uh, listening on the podcast that this is Nick's perspective. And so as I think Nick alluded to and pretty much said, you know, you talk to another individual with autism or autistic adult, they might have a different perspective. And it's really that we should be listening to all of these perspectives and that these perspectives are important. So thank you, Nick, for, for coming Speaking on. Perspectives, there is a question about perspectives on the loading dock. Oh, there is. Oh. Um, so do you feel that one person's opinion about autism should be treated as all persons' perspectives? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I think the same applies for any um, person who is a member of a certain demographic group. Um, nevertheless, I think that you sh that one should weigh their opinion um, with the, with the, with I think the due attention and respect, and keep in mind that like that um, I think a lot of people who are trying that are trying to talk about autism um, might might not be from um, might might not be from a background in which um, you actually had autism. Of course. Um, there are many different types of perspectives that are highly valued, like whether you came from, come from a scientific community or, uh, or, or if you're a parent of someone with autism. But I do think that um, someone who has autism, um, even if they're not speaking for all people with autism, I think can speak for or at least tap into what a, a substantial amount of people who have autism um, feel or think or, um, or, or, or knows their experience. Well, once again, Nick, we are at that closing mark. So we want to thank you so much for coming. Uh, for all those who are in attendance, thank you for joining us live. And for all those listening to the podcast, also thank you for listening to our podcast. Um, I want to remind everyone that's in April 16th, a few months away, we're having our six, I believe it's six, right, Joe? It like it is. Yeah. I think, well, I don't know where you're going with this, but we're I, I had six. to make a guess at six. Yeah, it's our sixth annual conference. So please sign up today. It's an amazing lineup. We have Amy Gravino and Peter Gerhardt. Uh, we have Amanda Kelly, AKA Behavior Babe. We have Tim Vollmer. Um, we have uh, Nora Syad. Am I, who am I missing, Joe? Uh, I, lo I lost track there. But if, if anyone's interested in it uh, and learning more, they can go to www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org and all the information and how to register is there as well. Yeah, it'll be a great day of learning, always fun. Uh, fun, to, fun to hang out with uh, behavior analysts and people interested in helping individuals uh, diagnosed with autism around the world. So please uh, sign up today and uh, we look forward to seeing you there. We will be coming back in uh, two weeks and the topic will be, you know the topic yet, Joe? Something along the lines of mentorship. I don't think we have a fancy name for it yet, but it's going to be geared around mentorship. Maybe some of the, the participants that are here can uh, th throw us a, a bone and give us a fancy title for it. But uh, I also wanna say if you want CEUs for this, uh, make sure that you listen to the opening and closing words. And uh, the closing word for this will be strengths. And all you need to do is go to www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast and you can get CEUs for this.